This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And uh, Ramon is present. And Jonathan, I must be honest, yesterday I went to go see a dentist, a very nice, big, burly man. Uh, and he took Did out he have tox- toxic masculinity? Uh, well, Does he shave with Gillette? Uh, not, he doesn't shave at all by the looks of it uh, when I last saw him. Oh, so, no. That's terrible. So, That's very terrible. toxic. But what is not toxic is his ability to wrench a tooth out of my mouth with uh, vicious force. Mm-hmm. And I thought, while, while that was happening, I thought, this is um, a lot more interesting than reading the ANC manifesto. Well, yes. Um, most things are uh, more interesting and less painful than involving yourself with the ANC. I mean, I wonder, did anyone in the stadium actually People don't go care? to stadiums to listen to the policy. They go to stadiums for free T-shirts and sometimes food parcels. That's racist. That's how this, that's how this works. I don't know what race of people are at the stadium. That's racist. <laughs> that's a great way to start. You're racist. No, you're racist. Yeah. Yeah. So no, that's all I want to say, really. That's my introduction. Well, that's really what happens at these rallies. I mean, political rallies, you get freebie stuff. You, you, we're going to have a, a DA person on the show. You think at the DA rally where they've got a street full of blue, you think uh, a whole bunch of people didn't show up for a free shirt? Well, I hope it's gourmet burgers as well. That's the DA, you know, you need to up the standards. <laughs> yeah, with those special food trucks, you know, because it's in yeah, Cape Town. So yeah, it's got to be like… Uh, with churros and cinnamon <laughs> and, uh, and gluten-free uh, croissants. Right. Because that's how it's done. I mean, you don't want, you don't want like a, a, a polystyrene… So what do you get in EFF rally? You also get a shirt, right, and a healthy dose of like Karl Marx. Do they give like… Do they give the book out and make you pay for it? I don't it? know if they can spell Karl Marx. Going over your head as well. So. <laughs> yes, you may ha- very well have some lead going over your head. Well, um, that that voice you just heard um, is our guest for the week. Enough of us talking nonsense. Uh, our guest is very well known at the moment, certainly well known in general, but uh, most recently well known for being just utterly unqualified to be in parliament really um and i'm not even sure if you're qualified to be on the show i i'm you know i worry about uh, about this john stienhazen from the da <laughs> how great, are you great to be here very very well thank you yeah. the worst intro you've ever had to, to, to any <laughs> no no to, i've had a lot worse than that i can assure you that. <laughs> i mean to be fair we've had about i don't know how many 15 20 phds on the show yeah, this is, this is what I'm saying. So we had to, we had to you know, we had to, <laughs> we've got to lay it down, you yeah? know? So you're basically saying you're dumbing down the show today, and that's why it's... Uh, Just for you, John, to make you feel comfortable, <laughs> before we go into For the Kill a bit later on. So, I mean, bit of a... Okay, for those who don't know you, obviously you're the Chief Whip of the DA in Parliament, and I mean, that's it, that's your title, right? That's correct. So, bit of a shit week for the DA, don't you think? I think we've had a great week. Absolutely <laughs> great week. All right, let's spin. Let's let's go for the no, spin. I think we've had a great week. Right, we, we, there was a billboard with a whole bunch of dead people's names on it. Um, Marikana victims um, there uh, both on both sides. And Esedimeni. Um, Esedimeni, life Esedimeni. And where else? Children who had been uh, yes, children who had, who had who had drowned and completely unnecessarily in pit latrines. Uh, all right. What's, so sorry, what size was this billboard? Was it like thirty kilometers long by ten kilometers wide? Well, given a, the outrage, you'd imagine it was uh, it stretched between Durban and Johannesburg. Yeah. Yes. No, well, it was a relatively small billboard at the uh, 
bottom end of Joburg. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, this is the case. The ANC can shit the bed and no one cares. The DA farts and everyone loses their mind. So uh, you're held to a, a higher standard. That's not always a, a bad thing. Uh, what do you say to the criticism of the billboard in terms of that it's used, uh, you know, the, the, the names of dead people, that it's, it's, it's disrespectful? Some people felt, you know, people have this thing about respecting the dead, um, uh, that it's just uh, you, uh, cheap politicking and, and all of those kinds of comments. Well, I think it's a classic case of the problems we have in South Africa of just misplaced outrage. Outrage should be the fact that those people died at Marikana, mowed down by the SAPS. Those patients died under the Gauteng Health Department's care at Life Estimini, and those children died in government uh, schools where toilets aren't provided and they fell into pit latrines. That's where the outrage should be. The outrage should be where is the justice for the victims of Marikana so, mm. uh, lo- for, so long down the line? Where's the victim for the families of Life Estimini? Did the Gauteng Health Department or the ANC ask any of those families permission before they, A, mowed them down, B, neglected them completely at hospitals, or C, was unable to build toilets. I'd also say that you can visit any town in South Africa, any city, across the length and breadth of our country, and somewhere in the town will be a memorial that has the names of people who have either died in battle or have died from some other tragedy. Secondly, to make the point this, that those names were all published in the Farlam Commission report, the Zariti Commission report, they've been extensively covered, uh, pictures of the victims, extensively covered in media. A billboard is just another form of media. And the point that we're trying to make on behalf of those families, uh, of those people who have died, is that there's been no justice for them. And that's what should outrage us as South Africans. Not the fact that this this billboard went up. Sure. What Ramon, I and has been subsequently removed. Yes, and of course, uh, you know, there's all this thing about disrespect for the dead. I would say it's mostly disrespectful dead to go and rip apart uh, a billboard that has their names and write on the place where the names were. I think that's greatly disrespectful. It also shows absolute intolerance. We have freedom of speech and freedom of expression uh, enshrined in our constitution, and provided it doesn't cross the threshold of hate speech, you should be allowed to share and impart ideas. It was Nathan Sharansky who, who made that famous test called the Village Square Test, where he said your real test of a democracy is whether you could go into the village square and say whatever you liked without persecution or prosecution uh, or uh, or a fear of reprisal. Well, here is a classic case of us putting together a political viewpoint, sharing it publicly, and it gets torn down. And of course, you know, no one's arrested the perpetrators who damaged the billboard, who, who mm. have threatened and impinged on our right to uh, political expression in South Africa. And that should frankly worry every freedom-loving South African because it starts with DA billboards and then you've got to ask where it's going to end. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not the first time a billboard has been vandalized. So uh, we've had we've had this before uh, with the Zuma Must Fall. That wasn't a DA billboard. That was a, a private individual who put that up. Uh, it would seem that if you're going to put up a non-ANC billboard, if it's not kind of yellow in the background, a picture of Nelson Mandela, just reminding everyone that we once had a good guy in our organization uh, and some stupid slogan, it will get vandalized. I think, uh, you know, it's just standard to come with gun turrets now. Um, <laughs> so people can't, can't access it. Just one more thing about the death. It is, it is quite weird for a political party like the ANC who, who, who grandstand at every single funeral ever to talk about their policies and talk about themselves at every stage possible. Even like Mandela's funeral itself, 
Yeah. They spoke about themselves all the time. To say that this is disrespectful to the dead, it is, uh, well, I mean, the height of hypocrisy is, you know, it's, it never, it never gets high enough because we're just so jaded at this stage. What, what do you make of, I suppose that, what Ramon's referring to as the jaded sort of view South Africans have on continuous government corruption, um, just ongoing and, and in every sort of sphere. But, but I'm thinking you've mentioned the Farlam and Sariti commissions. I've made it clear very many times that I think these commissions are a load of nonsense. We have a justice system which I feel should deal with these people. Uh, commissions seem like a way where everyone goes and they, they kind of, it's like group therapy. They kind of say, look, this is the bad thing I did. And sometimes, sometimes they deny it, but they eventually, you know, the judge acts like a psychologist and he gets it out of them. And then they go, oh, I'm really sorry. And I shouldn't have let, you know, um, mentally ill patients starve to death. And, and that, that was probably a bad thing. And, and, uh, when I get come back from from the UK where I'm studying some random degree, um, I, I promise I'll feel even worse about it. Um, so, and, and, and that doesn't do anything for me. Um, I, I, as a citizen, I haven't suffered from from these particular incidents, but I definitely feel for for the people involved. Certainly, because of the the nature of the life is to many thing, and because I, I have actually dealt with psychiatric patients, I can, you know, put myself um, into that position far better. Um, and I think it's horrific what happened. I just there's no there isn't any justice. There, nobody ever goes to jail. Uh, we 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 had a pro- president. Sorry, I'm, I'm going on a little bit, but we had a president who 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 sat in office for for ten years, and well, close to ten years, and he. He, he, nobody has gone to jail from his administration. We, everyone now, business leaders, the president, current president himself has admitted that there was wide scale corruption. Um, but nobody's been punished. So what do you make of the way we approach these problems and, and dealing with them? Well, you know, but people ask me, what do you think some of the biggest problems are in South Africa? I can really boil it down to a couple of, of key things, but I always say to them, one of the biggest problems we have in South Africa is ANC. In this case, ANC stands for absolutely no consequences because every single time where there is a, a outrage, uh, every single time we've had a significant abuse of public office or public uh, consequences, very, very little uh, happens to the perpetrators. And I still, you still think we had yet to see a senior, very senior politician go to jail and stay in jail. I mean, Tony Yengeni, I think, went through prison on stilts. He was out very quickly. Uh, but you've yet to see a single municipal official uh, jailed. You've yet to see a single senior public office bearer spending serious jail time uh, as a result of the actions or any big civil recoveries. So often these commissions are actually used to buy government time from actually having to deal with a thorny issue. So you create the commission. The commission goes on for a year, two years. By the time it actually reaches its conclusions – Either the perpetrators are gone as, or, or have passed away as they did in the uh, Sariti Commission into yeah. the arms deal. All the chief protagonists are gone. Nobody's been held accountable. The same uh, with the Farlam Commission. There's no, nobody's been held accountable uh, in any significant way uh, for that. The second thing, a point I do want to make about these commissions as well, in, in particular relation to the Zondo Commission that's currently underway, and everyone's tongues are wagging on this Pasasa and the revelations that are coming out there. And it has not ceased to amaze me this week how everybody sort of acts shocked and, and, and outraged by, yeah. by these, re- these revelations. When in fact, none of these revelations are new. They've been in the public realm, uh, some of them for over six years. 
criminal cases. I've lodged criminal cases on a variety of the Basasa matters. But the truth of the matter, the law enforcement agencies in this country, those responsible for prosecuting and bringing to justice the perpetrators, have sat on their hands and done absolutely nothing. Uh, Basasa should have been investigated and shut down by the hawks, uh, by our courts, by the judiciary, uh, by a whole you know slew of people who are employed to protect uh, the citizens and uphold the law. A uh, long time ago, and yet they've been allowed to carry it. Then when the revelations come out, the Zona Commission, everyone's shocked and horrified. Just like uh, Sir Ramaphosa's feigned surprise and shock and thank the media for bringing uh, to his attention the, <laughs> the whole-scale issue of state capture. It's nonsense. He was sitting around the table when those decisions were being made. Uh, he's been at the heart of government for the last six years. Uh, it's impossible to have sat around the cabinet table uh, at the Tuli House. As chairman of the deployment committee of the ANC and say you didn't know what was going on in state enterprises, you didn't know what was going on with state capture, it's completely farcical. Yeah, so so he was in charge of deployment and he was in, in government at the time. So if he didn't know, he's completely incompetent and should be president. If he did know, he's complicit and shouldn't be president so i mean it's a catch-22 for, for both ways but i mean nevertheless if you if you if you listen to some of our esteemed uh intellectuals that write uh in our newspapers no but he's you know he's a good guy he's trying to to wrench the anc away from what it actually is which is a rent-seeking socialist uh seeking enterprise and it's going to make i don't know i don't know what they expect him to make of it um let's talk about hegemony for a little while so the, people Look at the word hegemony and then it's really – ANC hegemony is not just about capturing the state as they've done through cater deployment and due to the NDR. It's also about the, the acceptable ideas within a society and they've done that extremely well. The ANC has, has managed to create propaganda where they are the, – the icons and this is just – you know, this is just a slight blip in their, in their historical uh, struggle for, for democracy – all of it, which is essentially bullshit. So what do you make of these people who, who defend the ANC at all costs, who are not really ANC supporters in terms of memberships, but they just, they just can't imagine South Africa without the ANC? Well, I think they lack imagination. It's the same thing I, I said to Peter Bruce in an exchange we had on another environment on another show. Uh, a while ago, I said the problem with him is he just lacks the imagination to imagine South Africa without the ANC in charge. So these people can only see South African politics and the political issues of governance through the lens of the, of the ANC. I think the most salutary lesson for them is precisely what's happening in Zimbabwe now. We look uh, a year, year and a half ago. Uh, Mnangagwa was hailed as the Ramaphosa then. He was the new dawn of Zimbabwe, having deposed a despotic, corrupt leader. This was the new start for Zimbabwe. Everyone expected that there was going to be this massive outbreak of constitutional democracy. Well, the situation in Zimbabwe shows very clearly that you can change the driver of the bus. But if you don't you know, change the direction of the bus, the bus will get rid of the bad, bad passengers on that bus. You're going to end up at the same destination. That's where Zimbabwe is today. They are suffering because ZANU-PF as a party has not been able to be uh, reformed or restructured. And so I would wonder how many people then were arguing, well, let's give Imnangagwa a strong mandate so that he can fix ZANU-PF. Well, you're seeing the end game of that in Zimbabwe now, incapable of of self-correction and capable reform because the, the organization has become so corrupt and so compromised through a variety of scandals over the course of the last two decades that it's incapable of self-correction. Yeah, and what, what people don't understand here is that 
The decisions that ANC makes in terms of leadership is largely dictated by the communists, the SACP, the actual communists, and the unions. Who did who did Cyril bow to first? Satu, hmm. the most destructive force in this country by far. You know, people that have stolen two generations' education. Hmm. Um, he bowed down to the communists. The communists deposed of Mbeki and they deposed of Zuma because he didn't follow the NDR correctly. Both of them did not follow the NDR hmm. correctly. So why would he somehow? Be beholden to the commies and to the unions and then somehow be this, this bright intellectual business orientated reformer. Mm. It makes no sense. Well, I think he's a classic political chameleon who changes his color according to the audience that he's with. So when he's in Davos or with European leaders, you know, he plays down the whole issue of expropriation without compensation. He plays down issues of the nationalization mm. of the reserve bank and, you know, jollies them along. When he's, you know, before a union audience here, Cyril the Chameleon, you know, turns a, a dark shade of red and, you know, you see the rhetoric that he comes out with and bending the knee, you know, to this Marxist-Leninist claptrap that uh, that they still are, are spewing out even though that, yeah. that, that's been disproved in every country that's been tried. I, I want to push back a little bit because you say they, they can't change direction. It's too too sort of late. And I would argue – you see – Everyone keeps arguing that what the problem really is is that you've got a lot of corruption. And if the ANC could just get rid of corruption, there were just people who you watched them, they had cameras on them all the time, so you couldn't be corrupt, and uh, they just were good people, right? Um, that that would solve the problem. And I argue that that wouldn't solve the problem because what you what you have is you have a bus that, that boarded at the station, 60 years ago. And that bus, in the front of the bus, the destination was communism. Mm. That was the destination. And the people on the bus realized that, and the bus driver specifically, realized that it may take them a century to get where they're going. And they're going to have a lot of detours along the way. They might ride through crony capitalism on the way. But at the end of the day, their destination is their destination. It's their core ideology of the party. This is quite important because I want to talk about the core ideology of the mm-hmm. DA later as well. And so you can have inverted commas good people. You can have inverted commas non-corrupt people running the ANC. That won't make a difference. And in fact, where we find ourselves right now is as a result not of corruption, but of where the ANC's ideology sits. What do you, what do you, yeah, take I from agree that? with you. Look, I mean, corruption's looted huge amounts of money. It's robbed opportunity from lots of people. But the problem at the end of the day is essentially a policy one and, mm-hmm. and policy direction. And you can change uh, sort of the head, the people at the head of the, of the table. But if you're still on this, on the wrong destination, you're on the wrong track, mm. you're going to end up at the same uh, failed state. And socialism and, and Marxist-Leninism, as we've seen the world over, leads to poverty. It leads to disinvestment. It leads to hunger. It, it, itself, to, it itself causes corruption because it cannot exist so, in a non-corrupt yeah. state. So it's, it's, it's the problem is, is an ideological problem. And that, you know, the policies that the anti want to pursue, and they were jollied along in the Mbeki era, largely by Trevor Manuel and others to say, look, well, you know, we'll, we'll get to communism eventually, but, you know, we've got to, we've hmm. got to use gear. We've got to use hmm. these all these other levers to to get sure. there, um, but the truth of the matter is that, the, the, like so many other things, the centre can't hold in the ANC, and it hasn't held. And so you've had this 
tug of war between you know, the hardened socialist Marxist Leninists within the ANC and what are called the sort of constitutionalist uh, mm. faction there. But what is it? You know, it, it is that conflict within that party between those those uh, factions that has actually led to this policy inertia over the last. Two decades. So you've got one half of the cabinet who says we've got to implement the NDP. We pass the NDP. You've got other half of the cabinet that says we absolutely will not uh, implement the NDP. It's a, you know, a neoliberal policy. We want the uh, new growth path, the NGP, and you know, which sees more state control and state uh, exercising control of the levers. And in that clash, you've ended up with with essential inertia, which has cost us a decade. Of, of economic growth. It's driven 10 million of our people into the unemployment queues. And you have the same people now wanting to use the same policies to try and solve the very problem that those policies have got us into. It's, it's complete political foolishness. And that's why I've been telling audiences, if you want to, you know, one of my favorite politicians, Frank Underwood, says that if you don't <laughs> like the way the table's set, tip it over and, and reset it. And that's what needs to happen in South Africa because you can't solve the problems with the same people sitting around the same table making the same bad decisions. It's going to equal the same bad outcomes. So that's why Ramaphosa changing at the top is not going to change you know, that essential dilemma within the ANC. And that's why you've seen this wrangling, you know, near barely a day after the manifesto is released, this wrangling in the ANC about what the manifesto actually says and what it means. Cyril saying one thing, Ace saying another. And it's that confusion and policy uh, inertia that well, it's not going to get us on the, on the road to growth and th- progress. That's another point uh, Gareth von Onselen, I think, actually recently made is um, the ANC will release something that says, let's, you know, let's uh, talk about the, the Reserve Bank and, and privatize mm-hmm. uh, the Reserve Bank being nationalized. And to one audience, as you mentioned with Cyril, to one audience or at the right time with certain media houses, whatever it happens to be, the message will be, um, we obviously don't want to nationalize the Reserve Bank, but we do want to look at the structure or something like that. So it'll sound soft. Uh, and so people who are really worried, uh, you know, um, or even slightly worried, uh, the max, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Max Dupriers of the world, who who kind of see see the the ANC can never do any wrong, uh, but he's still concerned a little bit about this. He'll go, ah, you see, uh, they just want to restructure it. They don't want to nationalise it. And then, of course, uh, speaking to say a, a, a group of the party's leaders or or a specific faction, uh, then the message will come out: we are going to nationalise the. Reserve Bank because they stand in the way of our progress. Uh, so, and then what ultimately happens is the people who want to hear the positive message, hear the positive message. Um, the nationalization is never as radical as it possibly could be, but it still happens. And the people who were always on the positive side go, look, it could have been worse. And mm-hmm. so we carry on. And we've, we've done this repeatedly again and again and again. I, I feel like we're doing it with EWC. We're going to end up at a point where they take away farms and unused property and house owners go, you see, not so bad. I still own my house. Um, for now. Well, that, well, that's the problem, slippery slope. Uh, so. Yeah. But the corruption thing really irritates me because I think corruption is endemic anyway. But it's not, corruption is not the reason that we are in a recession. It's not the reason we are in junk status. It's not the reason that we are the lowest growing economy or the slowest growing economy in Africa. Uh, those, those things were caused by non-corrupt people. 
Pravin Gordon, communist. Rob Davies, communist. Ibrahim Patel, communist. It's Pravin that, that borrowed 2.7 trillion rand to, to pay civil servant salaries. It's Rob Davies that has, in, in, you know, uh, put in severe restrictions and limitations, uh, that restrict trade, like B, BE stuff. Like he's, he's mad about BE. Like it's, 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 and, and Ibrahim Patel, I mean, let's not get into him, but it's the, it's the, it's, people think that somehow, the country won't be destroyed solely due to ideology. And, and that is completely wrong. It's happened before. It will happen again. It happens all over the world. Why can't we just say that ideology is rotten and they will run roughshod over everything and everyone who opposes it as long as the ideology is followed and they remain in power? I mean, I don't know why that is such a, a strange statement to make. And I'm, you know, I'm called a fear monger for saying that. Mm. But it is the truth. Yeah, I would agree with you completely that you know we have very successful economies in the world where you have high levels of corruption still. It doesn't mean that they're not growing. It doesn't mean that they've got very high unemployment rates. Uh, it just means that they've got uh, you know, corrupt officials there. So I would agree with you in that regard. I think that what, what the corruption does do is robs opportunity and reduces your ability to – uh, you know, exercise the levers of power to, to make life better for South Africans. But as I said, you know, this bus is on the same trajectory and, you know, repeating the same thing over and over again and following the same path is not going to change things. We need a fundamental reset in South Africa that's going to put us on a completely new trajectory. And it's not rocket science, but there's this romantic, uh, hold that the ANC have and it's, it's reflected in their attitude to Russia and the Soviet Union and, and their romanticism about Cuba and their, the bizarre statement by the SACP heaping praise on Maduro in the last week. It's reflected there. They just can't bring themselves to criticize an ideology and a set of policy choices that has completely failed South Africa and our people and failing government as well because it's not working. And so what needs to, to happen is a, is a fundamental reset and change in that policy direction of South Africa. But unfortunately, you know, I think things are getting worse. And, you know, people say, well, Cyril, you know, we need to give him a, a strong mandate to stand up against the radicals and, and this radical policies in the ANC. Well, he's got a 63% majority now. And I don't know what's more radical than expropriating private property, than nationalizing the healthcare industry in South Africa, than restricting uh, citizens' rights to self-defense, uh, to uh, you know, going off their pension funds, to nationalizing the Reserve Bank. These are very radical positions. And he's done it with a 63% majority. And now people crazily want to go and give him an even bigger majority in the next election. It's, it's complete madness. It's also the antithesis of democratic accountability because you never reward a party that steered the economy onto the rocks, pushed 10 million people into the unemployment queue, presided over the theft of hundreds of billions of rand of public money and, you know, continue with corrupt officials in place by increasing their vote at the next election. That's not democratic accountability. I think it's going to be a, a big mistake because if voters do that and it happens and people play with fire in that regard, if you think the ANC are arrogant now and are power drunk now, after an election where – you know, despite all they've done wrong, there's no electoral consequence for them. I can tell you, you're going to see that go into overdrive uh, after that election. The na the radicalism and the because they're going to see it as an endorsement of these failed policies, and they're going to rather than throttle back and change direction, they're going to push full steam ahead for an even faster implementation of this radicalism and socialism. Why do you think it is that most South Africans who who vote at least? 
don't seem to see what you see. I, I agree with, with, with much of what you've said. Uh, and there's a lot of um, talk about the DA's messaging. Uh, but it doesn't need to be the DA's messaging. I think if you just read newspapers, you would come to some similar conclusions about the failures of the ANC. I'm trying to understand why they get 63%, why in the next election, based on current relatively reliable polling, they're looking to get at least 58 And that's still an overwhelming majority in a country where people have gotten poorer, everyone. This is from the lowest, the poorest of the poor to the, to the wealthiest. Um, everyone has gotten poorer in the last decade. Um, everyone is worse off now than they were socially, financially, um, probably psychologically too, based on the country's status and the crime levels and, and all the other uh, social threats. Um, why is it that the average voter doesn't see that problem? It's hard, it's hard to, to fathom because you're seeing time and time again, and you see it reflected most notably in by-elections. So a community will go and burn down a municipal clinic because they're unhappy at service delivery and they're unhappy with their councillor. There's a by-election. They either go and vote for that same councillor again or they vote for the same party again. So I, I think that very few – well, not enough voters in South Africa – uh, see the causal link between their lived circumstances and the way in which they vote. And that's why you have people who are living in formal settlements and have for the last 20 years go blindly voting for the ANC in the next election. You, what's why you see when Jacob Zuma, despite the fact that he has caused suffering and harm to South Africa on a grand scale and presided over a, a, a vampire a government that sucked the very lifeblood out of, out of the economy and, and out of government departments, gets rapturous applause when he walks into the ANC's manifesto launch in Durban. And I think people don't realize the causal link. And I also don't think people realize just how serious this fight that we are, are heading into because the ANC and, and Cyril tend to present this you know, very acceptable you know, middle-of-the-road uh, facade. But what they're essentially doing at every single step is moving closer and closer to the outcomes of the National Democratic Revolution, which means they've got full control of not only the levers of state, but of all levers of society. They want the state and the party mm -hmm. conflated to control people's lives. So what we're seeing actually are the frontiers of individual freedom being rolled back in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So whether it's your right to own property, your right to financial security, your right to choose the health care and how you how you choose to access health care, your individual choice there, all of that is being rolled back by the ANC. They are stamping out individual freedom in South Africa. And unless more and more South Africans get up and realize that this is actually the essential uh, goal and uh, reason the ANC exists to get this complete conflation between states and party and then for complete control and dominance over over South Africa, they're going to wake up when it's too late. We're going to end up with a situation uh, like you have uh, in Turkey at the moment. People say, you know, well, it'll never happen here. Well, Turkey went from probably a model uh, democratic uh, uh, country on the, on the verge of admission to uh, the European Union. Yeah. In three short years, it was a totalitarian, totalitarian dictatorship, hmm. and it just shows you how quickly it can happen. And more and more people need to wake up to what the real issue is. I think we get distracted by the leaves far too often. We don't actually see what's actually the, the, the wood in front of us, where the real uh, problem lies uh, going forward. 
Yeah, but when you do say NDR, people just roll their eyes. They say, oh, just uh, fear-mongering. But now, John, let's get million-dollar mm. question now. Mm. Why? Does, what All you said, we all agree. I think most people at our show will agree with you. What's up with the DA? Like, just not, not take advantage. Or maybe I'll take advantage and are voters just uh, tribal? Um, is it is the ANC that big of a cult? Is the DA failing to to get a good message out? Like what's what's happening with the DA? Because it doesn't seem, based on the polls we've seen, that the DA is doing much better than it was doing mm. five years ago at this stage. So, what would you attribute that to? Well, look, I mean, I think it's a number of things. I think there's a, a you know, if you look at South Africans generally, there's a very strong brand loyalty, and it ex, you know extends past politics. Uh, South Africans generally, by and large, you know, find brands and they stick with them. I think the ANC have a strong brand. They've always portrayed themselves as the party of liberation, uh, the party of Nelson Mandela and the like, and it, it is a compelling message. I also think that where the DA has gone wrong and where I think we spent you know, a lot of time last year in is criticizing you know, the government and not offering people uh, an alternative. And so what you need to do, I think that everybody knows why South Africa is in the situation it is in. I think everybody knows who is responsible for us being in that situation. Uh, but what people are looking for now is, okay, how do I get out of this? And so what we have to do is firmly plant that ladder of opportunity in each voter's home and show them the ladder out of the situation they're in, you know, reforming uh, education, uh, fixing the economy, a complete reform of our labor regime. And we've got to paint that ladder and each rung in it in voters' minds because I don't think we've been, we've been good at setting out the alternative. I, I mean, that, that, that's fine, but I, I just don't think like you, you're radical enough in, in, in your in your views You don't say The reason you're poor Is not because you don't have anything The reason you're poor Is because you don't have rights You don't have property mm-hmm. rights The government controls everything They control I mean people have been Living in a Venezuelan type situation For decades in this country Because the government mm-hmm. provides them In uh, what, what are these quotes called? Air quotes Air quotes <laughs> They <laughs> provide them with their With their uh, monthly grants They provide them with their Shitty public uh, health they uh, give them shitty schools. So people have been living in a socialist hellhole for decades. Why can't the DA say the government is the cause of your problems? What we want to do is to free you from the government, give you the rights to your land, the rights to choose your school, the right to choose your health provider, and make you rich. Now, why, for, personally, am I for myself? The DA says we're just a better form of government, a better form of oppression as an anarchist or government is oppression. The DA is just a better form of government. Why not just say the government is a problem? We'll take it out of your life. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a difficult, uh, difficult for a political party to go out and sell an anarchist or uh, a libertarian uh, view like that. It'll put us out of business. So we, well, <laughs> although you have been somewhat libertarian, here's the thing, yeah. right? I think your messaging is just wrong because some of the things I've you've actually done. Wanted to to hear that answer. Well, I'll <laughs> to let him finish. Okay, the libertarian thing you've done is you said you were going to take away a whole bunch of ministries. Mm. Okay, that's libertarian. It's not completely libertarian. Mm. Fine, but it's it's a pathway there. Yeah, well, I think it's about reducing the size of government, getting government out of the way. I think government far too often in South Africa is the obstacle. I think government is the obstacle to a 
a good education system. I think government is the obstacle to people being able to use their labor uh, and offer their labor how they see fit. I think government is the obstacle to economic growth because they make investing here, they make visiting here as difficult as possible through you know, impossible regimes, silly programs, and frankly, absurd policies. So the more you can reduce government and get government out of the way, the better it makes things. And I think we've shown that where we govern in the Western Cape. We've got a bit, we're unashamedly pro-business and pro-development and economic development in the Western Cape. And we go out and we partner with business. We don't treat part, uh, business as some sort of enemy or you know, some sort of uh, group of people who need to be you know, uh, push, pushed at bay and kept out of the way. We partner with business and that is why the economy has grown in the Western Cape. Even in the midst of a drought, even in the midst of a you know, economic meltdown in the country, the Western Cape government uh, under the DA was able to grow the economy in partnership with business and create jobs, uh, which is the complete reversal of what's happening in the rest of the country. So, you know, I agree completely, and that's why the, the 15 ministries proposal is there. We've got to reduce the size of government, not only for, uh, you know, the, the political reasons, but also for financial reasons. Uh, we currently, uh, spend a huge amount of money. The public service wage bill, completely out of, out of, out of control, completely unsustainable. And unless we start radically rolling back government and reducing its size and r- introducing far more efficiency and effectiveness, you're not going to be able to, uh, to, to, to affect the change and life actually gets harder for people. And I think that if you look at what's happened now with driver's licenses and the like, that's something I shared on Facebook yesterday. When a government makes laws and regulations that require you to have X license or uh, Y permit and then makes it virtually impossible to obtain X license or Y permit, uh, it's, you know, you've got to ask yourself, is that ga- government actually capable of delivering anything? Well, I mean, you know Milton Friedman, no doubt. Yes, of course. Right. And Milton, what did Milton Friedman say? He said, if the government was in charge of the Sahara Desert, they'd run out of sand. <laughs> and I think that's very true. Uh, would you like uh, another good. water? Thanks. All right. So I'm enjoying this water. There's not much of it in the Western Cape at the moment, so it's a bit of a luxury. Thank you. Um, well, okay. So I, I don't think we know why the, why the message isn't getting through to the, to the average voter. Um, I, you know, be, because I really have felt that that's, that's a problem – of messaging in the DA, but I think it's also a problem of policy. You know, you bring up the Western Cape and I agree with you with regards to the DA being business friendly in the Western Cape that has helped investment and that has helped grow the economy there. Um, you've also, uh, governed relatively well in things people like to see their government doing, uh, filling potholes and supplying, uh, reliable electricity and, 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 and the like, uh, you know, communicating relatively well with, with their citizens. That kind of stuff happened in Cape Town, more specifically when Helen Zilla was in charge of Cape Town, um, and, and, and has carried on, but, but there have been problems. Those things have happened relatively well, but then there's also this weird streak in the party. Um, and I realize you're a party made up of individuals and I've been told this before and a broad church and all that stuff. Um, we had a Gwen and Gwenya on the show and she gave us the broad church talk, but, when you make start making policies which are nannying, they are nanny state policies. Um, I think that those things turn people off. I think they turn your base off. I think they, the average voter is certainly not going to buy into a system or a party they don't have much love for in the first place. And then there's a nanny policy about when I can buy alcohol or um, a new license I need to put up a solar panel, uh, which is none of your business because my private property and you don't own the sky or the sun or the solar rays. Um, so 
those things are seems like shoot yourself in the foot. And I just don't – I'm not sure I understand that. Yeah, well, I mean, just in terms of the solar one, my understanding is that is a national government requirement and cities are required to – to get those last uh, But come on, there's federalism in this yeah. country. The yeah, Western Cape should turn around and go, yeah. you know what? That's yeah. a bullshit law. Yeah. If you want to set up a solar panel in your own private property in, in the Western Cape, go ahead and do it. We're not enforcing the law. Frankly, you, you have no power to enforce the law. I mean, the, 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 the entire discussion we have is a laugh in a way because, um, you can do almost anything you want in South Africa and nothing will happen to you. You, you, we've discussed it on the show before, all the way up to murder. But most normal people aren't murdering each other. They are speeding, however. They are committing traffic violations all the time. Uh, people are littering, uh, they're breaking basic bylaws. Um, who has a, not that I think you should need one, but who has a dog license? No one. Um, None of this crap gets enforced. Some of it shouldn't be enforced because it's a whole load of rubbish. And some of it um, uh, isn't enforced because in the Western Cape, you can't even stop gangs from killing each other because the SAP won't support you. So, or doesn't give you as much support as you mm. should, you, you probably require. Um, so I, I just, I just don't understand why this need to kind of make these extra rules, which seem completely unnecessary and are counterproductive to gaining support for mm. the party. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think it's, it is a difficult space and, you know, I think that there's huge pressure, I think, particularly on uh, municipalities when it comes to electricity generation and water generation, because often the, the, uh, you're not allowed to use the word profits in government. Uh, there was uh, you know, the surplus <laughs> that, uh, that emerges is obviously used to, to cross subsidize uh, services for, for the poor. And so when electricity consumption goes down as a result of more people moving to solar, uh, and in the absence of a national framework where, in fact, what government should be doing is subsidizing people to put in uh, solar panels in their homes and getting as many people uh, you know, off uh, off the grid, uh, you have exactly the opposite in South Africa. Let them feed that electricity back into yeah. the grid and well, then we give that no, free electricity exactly to the poor problem. people there's if no, you want. There is no – and that's the big complaint of uh, big uh, big business, uh, people like Tongard Hewlett who have excess uh, electricity. They can't feed it back into the grid because there's no – System for uh, negotiation around how, what the pricing would be, how you would do it, when it would happen, and uh, you know you have a, have a situation where it's completely, uh, you know, left up, uh, left in the air with with no ability for people to do it. So you're not incentivizing people to do it. What government should be doing is incentivizing more and more people to water harvest to uh, move off the grid. But of course, this has a financial impact, and I think that's often. The uh, wrong way to look at things, but it is a reality, particularly for for local government, about how it funds itself and how it uh, is able to sustain the rollout of its services. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, so there's there's that side of the DA, which is mm. the make silly rules, and the, so the nannyism, the nannyism, the nanny state sort of party. Um, which Helen Zeller described to us on this show as, you know, the competent state. Capable. Which, well, yes, sorry, the capable state, which terrifies me, frankly, if that's <laughs> what a capable state is. But, but, um, and then there's the other side of, um, the DA, which is kind of a, a split because it's very been made clear, at least by newspaper articles, as far as we can trust those these days. Uh, that, you know, there's a split in the party between a more sort of centrist and now it's just called right wing because that's insulting, of course, um, split in the party and, and a, the left side of the party. And you get this weird, this weird, um, ideology. Well, it's not weird anymore. It's the identity politics, um, and postmodernism and all the mix of all of that seeping into the, to the DA on the, on the left. 
in, in on those people who are on the left in the party and really toxifying the pool uh, which is a party that was a liberal party, liberal in a classically liberal sense, and is now moving to liberal in a completely American sense. Well, I would argue a social democrats. So to me, there appears to be a sort of, there's two broad factions, if you want, of the DA. There's like the classically liberal types, someone like, like you or Zach Mbele or Helen Zeller. And then you got the sort of the younger Bernie bros, as I call them, people who would vote for Bernie or Hillary Clinton. No, they wouldn't vote for Hillary, too neocon. Mm-hmm. Oh no, people were very upset Hillary lost uh, on Twitter. Very upset. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but uh, given a binary choice. Right, right. And, and there's sort of, there's, there's a mix of these two. Uh, so you've got the old, old school, old school guard who understand the, the literature. He's read the J.S. Mills, who understands the, the role of the state and how it functions. And this new type that couldn't find a home in the ANC because they were, not cadres. They couldn't go to the EFF because they were not radical enough. So the EFF, the DA sort of accepted them because it was, let me, I mean, let me, let me be honest, because they're young and black. So it's, you know, it's a good for the party to have young black politicians in it, but they don't seem to have a, uh, a keen grasp on what the DA is about. And you got these two groups. And I think that reflects in the leadership where the leadership seems to be rather weak. Um, and that impacts the messaging, oh, and, the, and that impacts the the way people view the party. Um, I'm happy to be to, for you to say I'm wrong, completely wrong on all this. I'm not a, an expert of the DA, so to speak, but that seems to be the problem to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that there's some fair criticism, but I think that you've got to got to also uh, be realistic. I mean, what is the point of politics and political parties? It's to be in a position to be able to get into power so that you can then implement your policies and, and principles. So yes, I mean, the DP was, uh, the DP, the PFP, uh, the progressive party before that were a cohort of really, a small cohort of, of really strong classical liberals. But the truth of the matter is that if the DA was to grow and to grow to, into a way that would be able to get into government and to start to implement your policies and implement alternative policies, it means you've got to become a, a, a bigger tent than, than just a small liberal club. Mm. And that's where the, the, where the, the real problem in politics lies. And it doesn't only beset the DA, it besets all sorts of policies. So we, you know, and now a party that's moved from a 1.6% party to a party that now is a 22% party. And in that growth, a variety of people have been attracted to the DA. And yes, I think there are competing philosophies in the DA. I think there are parties made up of people who, who have different worldviews, but it's also not unique to the DA. So if you look at the Conservative Party in Britain now, there's a huge debate raging within them around Brexit. They've got completely differing views, but they're still able to, to come together as a cohesive unit. And I think that the, that what you need to look at is the, the values and the principles that underlie the party. And those haven't changed. So yes, there may be individuals who are in the party that are not necessarily classic liberals. Uh, and you may well find that some of them are are strong social democrats. But if the parties to grow, we've got to become the broader church, bringing like-minded people together around a common set of shared values. That's the only way we're going to to build a new consensus in South Africa. And so the party has had some growing pains. We've attracted people to the party that don't necessarily share the worldview and values. And I think we've We've had some unpleasant experiences with those kinds of people when there becomes a clash with the value set. But I'd like to think that at every time we've been tested, that we've held firm to the values of, and principles of the party, of accountability, holding our own accountable, and that we've, we've made the right decisions uh, in the end. Uh, and I, I think that 
that you know we've got to be realistic. We want to get into a position where we're able to govern, and that means we've got to attract more voters to the DA. And you've got to do it. You know, there's some nuances, but when it comes to matters of principle and on values, you've got to stand solid uh, and and ensure that those values and principles hold out. All right. So I used to buy this consensus argument, mm. and then a few things happened. Brexit, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro, Orban, uh, and I forget the guy in Poland. Salvini. Sorry? Salvini in Italy. Mm. Uh, Salvini is Italy, yeah. Mm. None of this shows consensus. All of this shows that at least for now, the political movement, uh, and I've used uh, people on the right as an example, but uh, uh I can use people on the left as the Democrats who, who, who took the House recently, mm-hmm. um, several, several very far leftists, certainly the furthest they've ever had. They just put a terrorist sympathizer onto their foreign affairs committee, an anti-Semite and a terrorist sympathizer. Um, so the consensus is not where politics is at the moment, in my opinion. Um, the, you talk about the Tories. Yes. There are people that are pro-Brexit, there are people that are anti-Brexit, and that is why the Tories are currently polling lower than a man who should never get near the reins of power, ever. I'm not sure he should be allowed to drive a vehicle, okay, because Honorable be, be, because he might, because he may very well see someone he considers to be too wealthy and run them over, because that's what rich people deserve in his, in his <coughs> view, okay, and Jews also deserve that, and, and anyone who's not a worker also deserves that. So the, the reality is I don't see that the consensus is where things are. I see that the, 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 the bravery of what Ramon was talking about, where you take uh, a position on things and you go, yeah, this is crazy. This we've never done before. You've never heard it like this. You've heard border security. We need to keep our borders safe. We don't want random people coming into our country. You've heard that. Everyone said that. John Kerry said that. Hillary Clinton said that. Bill Clinton said that. Bush said that. Barack Obama said that. Al Gore said that. Barack Obama said that. What you've never heard is we don't want rapists in our country and we're going to build a wall. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm saying that that seems to be what people are resonating with. People are tired of the, the, the fact that anyone in any party can say the same tired stuff. Um, they know it's a, it's a speech writer. They know there's a team that's checked over this. And instead of Musi Maimani standing up and going, uh, you know, we're, what we're going to do is if you earn less than 10,000 rand a month, you're going to get a voucher on a card at the beginning of every year. On that voucher will be 25,000 rand for each of your children. On that card will be a voucher for every single member in your family for 20,000 rand in healthcare. You will be able to go anywhere you like and swipe that card. Now that's radical. That's radical. That might resonate. That'll piss the hell out of anyone on the left in this country. Um, it might even piss some libertarians off because uh, it's certainly some sort of social welfare system. But the point is it's a position. The point is it's a position. And I think, I think that unless the DA moves somewhere and starts to understand that consensus politics is dead, at least for now, um, and you've got to stick somewhere. And this is why you get called ANC light. 
This is it. But I would, I would advance this to you then. When we do it, yeah. we get nothing but stick and outrage back. So uh, I think the billboard. Stick and outrage is fine. The There's a man running the free world at the moment <laughs> who has had nothing but stick and outrage for three years. Mm. Nothing but it. Yeah. Nothing but it. But people, people making allegations that he wants to rape his daughter. People, people, um, trying to scare his son. People trying to break his marriage, even though he's done some dodgy shit that, that could have done that mm. itself. The point is, is, Forget the media. The media is not your friend. I, I don't know when the DA is going to learn this. The media is not your friend. The media in this country is far left. Um, uh, uh, the Huffington Post closed down for God's sake. Okay. I, I don't know what more needs to be said. Uh, you, you know, the people running, steering the ship are on Jenny Munusami, um, uh, Max Dupria. Uh, Andrian Basson and Feral Hafferty. These are the people you. controlling the media narrative. None of these people ever mm. want you to be in power. Um, yeah. You've got nothing to lose. But that's what I'm saying to you. you know, <laughs> we, we, I think we did it this week. I think we broke the sound barrier. We said, you know, okay, this thing's going to cause outrage. Cool. It's going to make people unhappy. But we're going to go up there and unveil this billboard. We're going to talk about crime. We're going to talk about a government that's neglected people. We're going to talk about a government that's, you know, uh, failed to, uh, you know, today, 20 something years on in government, deliver, uh, Flush toilets at schools or some form yep. of decent sanitation. And we did it. And I think it's, it got the reaction that we wanted. That's why I say to you, some people have said we've had a bad week. I think we've had a very good week because what you want with campaigns mm. is precisely this. You want to break the sound barrier. You want to get your opponents on the back, on the back foot and you want people to be talking about you. So, yeah. you know, I think it was Oscar Wilde said there's only one thing worse than people talking about you and that's people, people not, not talking, talking about, about you. you. And I think that's the billboard this week. Uh, you know, despite all the squeamishness from the softies on the left, uh, has actually put a flag in the sand for the DN. I think we're starting to rediscover that, mm. that boldness. Yeah, I, I, agree, I, with I agree with you yeah. as well. I, more flags in the sand, yeah. uh, more flags in the sand yeah. and less backing down. But that's exactly it. And then, you know, it's a point I make about politics and politicians. That's what's very important for politicians to be road signs rather than weather vanes. So weather vane will twist and swing in the wind and turn any direction. If you want to be a real leader and a real politician, and in fact, if you want to look at history, the only politicians who've actually changed life and circumstances for the people they represent are those who stood firm as, as road signs. Uh, you know, you look at, at how Thatcher was able to, to bring prosperity and turn Britain around, criticize it all you like, uh, the economist for uh, you know, uh, doesn't put somebody on the front cover of their magazine and call them freedom fighter for nothing. Uh, you know, she expanded individual uh, opportunity and she gave people their own homes. All the things the socialists hate and abhor, but you know, she was able to do it because she was unashamed about it. She was a road sign. She wasn't a weather vane. So you contrast her with someone like Jeremy Corbyn now, who you know is a complete weather vane. He's for, he's you know pro Europe one week, anti Europe the next week, pro NATO the one week, anti NATO the next week, friends with terrorists. It, it he twists in the wind the whole time. So well, we mean, need more road signs in, in, in politics in well, South Africa I mean, he's, he's and less very, weather vanes. He's very strong against the Jews. So give him a bit yeah. of credit. He's strong, strong on one thing, um, anti-Semitism. But he's soft where it matters. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I agree with you. I agree with you, John. I agree with you completely. And I think you are a good example of that, right, with that bullshit about – not a degree, even though you never said you had one in the first place. That sort of shit. <laughs> Sorry, I just laugh when you say it because it's just what the whole thing was just mad. But, but, that's, but that shit destroys people, and and you only came out of it much stronger. Well, so you are the type of person that can have that, that that pressure redirected and give it back twice as hard. Why isn't the, the okay? Maybe the DA is going to start hopefully, but why hasn't that been happening for like twenty years? 
Well, I think it has been happening for 20 years. I think that we've had some strong leadership. I think we've had some – do you remember the outrage when we put up that Stop Zuma poster? Can, did you, do you recall the sort of public yeah. vilification that the DA got? We were called Swat Gefan. My goodness me, if we'd actually stopped Zuma then – uh, you know, we wouldn't, you know, it would a different country day. And we were eight years ahead of our time because, you know, eight years later, you had uh, thousands of people marching on the streets holding up Stop Zuma signs. So, you know, we've, we've had this, we've been bold and unambiguous on, on key matters. Well, we've got to rediscover our, you know, our, okay, our, all right. our reason to exist and why we exist and what we are trying to achieve in South Africa, which is to unite South Africans from a variety of different backgrounds and languages but around I mean, a common set of values. With respect, you think you can govern this place? Because I think, I think that is one, one fatal flaw. Mm. Because I don't think the DA can govern South Africa. I think once the ANC is gone, this place will not be, be unified under any circumstances whatsoever. Why not just fortify the Western Cape and secede? <laughs> and because I'm, I'm, I'm semi-joking I think he's only semi-joking The secret of politics is not to to build factions or fractions It's to yes, unite it and lead the whole no, it's not. You've got to no. unite and lead it's the about, whole It's about and building a base, marketing to that base And being firm yeah, completely but, but the truth of the matter, the truth of the matter is that you know a Western Cape secession, I think, would be a, a very, very bad idea. Uh, I don't, I don't support uh, that at all. The Cape Party's thrust, etc. I also don't think it's it's realistic. But I think that what we have shown is that we can actually govern. And if you remember, the people said the same thing about the Western Cape. They were going to make it ungovernable. The DA would never be able to govern. It would be years and years of chaos and and unrest. Well, yes, there were a few weeks after the election where there were protests and a bit of sabotage and the like. But once we got down to the brass tacks and started demonstrating that we're serious about delivering to people, we're serious about turning uh, the CBD around uh, on, on reducing crime, we're serious about roading out services uh, you know, across the city to people who have not had them before, and we started to yield those results, people came along with you. So people forget that in the city of Cape Town, when we first took over, it was an eight-party coalition, only one with uh, one vote and one yeah. party abstaining. That city now, council now, has a two-thirds majority precisely because uh, people realize that you know, we've are aware we govern, we're able to govern better. If you're under a de-administration, you're more likely to have a job. You're more likely to have piped water and electricity and sanitation. You're more likely to have access to better public services, better schools. And that is the truth of the matter. So not only you know, uh, you know, can we govern South Africa, of course we can. We've shown it where we've been given the opportunity to so, do so. so. I think you'll be able to in terms of, of uh, abilities, but mm-hmm. I don't think you'll be able to win a, an outright election. I think after the ANC, no one will be able to in the foreseeable future. Of course not. And that, you know, that is, there, therein lies the, uh, you know, the future of South Africa. I mean, we've got to break the logjam that is our, is our politics and we've got to imagine a society and a world, uh, in, in a post ANC uh, dominated uh, government, and that's why it's absolutely essential that the DA grows and is able to uh, build itself up, so that we can, uh, in future, be the part of a centre coalition that actually is able to bring the decade of of strong, stable government that is required, and to have a sufficient majority to be able to. In Parliament to break down these destructive policies, education, our labour regime, uh, our economic uh, policy, and be able to start putting South Africa onto that new trajectory. And that's why we have to grow. It's imperative we grow because when you know the, the chips fall in in a 
post-election environment and we, you have, you have coalition building, we've got to be at the center and the heart of the coalition. We want to be the Tories, not the Lib Dems in, in a form of coalition. So uh, two, two questions flow mm. from that. Number one, I don't see any natural allies. Now, I'm not saying coalitions needs to be an alliance in terms of you should believe everything, everyone, but I don't see any natural allies to the DA because to me the DA is, despite all his fault, it's the only real liberal party perhaps in Africa. That's worth mentioning. There are a that's couple worth its, in but Ghana. That, that's worth its salt, right? That that's that's doing something fundamental here, and I think shying away from that, as I th- believe you have done, my personal opinion for the past few years, um, leaves the, the the country weaker. But also your negotiating capabilities for a potential coalition in the future, you have far less leverage. If that makes sense. Well, I think that, you know, if we're able to bring the ANC down, you know, and I think they're going to go down in this election, I think they will go down further in, in the following election. And I think they're, they're going to start losing control and power uh, at municipal level in far more municipalities around the country. I think that, that you know, we have to be able to be there to be the dominant force in an alternative coalition. What you don't want to do is to be playing second fiddle to, uh, you know, a bunch of socialists or or Marxists. And even when you're not playing second fiddle, it is difficult, as you've seen in Joburg and Chwane and Nelson Mandela Bay with the EFF. Now, the EFF are not a natural coalition partner for us. I also don't happen to believe that our hinterland lies in uh, in coalitions with them in the future. I think what South Africa needs is a strong, stable center coalition uh, that coalesces around a, a shared program about change and a new direction for South Africa. I don't think that, that the EFF uh, could possibly be, be part of it because they want to take us down a completely different road. But that's not to say that, that, you know, you can't find common ground. And I think some of the most, if you look at the most prosperous period in Germany's uh, post-war history was the decade of uh, coalition between the SPD and the CDU. Now they're completely different sides of the of the political spectrum, but were able to form a coalition around a shared set of of outcomes that they wanted to achieve: economic stability, economic growth, uh, creating employment, uh, cleaning up government, and reforming the energy regime in Germany. And they were able to achieve it, even though they were on different sides of the political spectrum. So I think that the future will land coalition politics. But it's absolutely essential that the DA grows and gets stronger because you want to be able to have the bulk of the chips that you put on the table when it comes to negotiating that so that you can uh, direct the, you know, where things are going to go and the broad framework of, of that, of that coalition. Okay. Let's talk about the elephant with a strong jawline in the room. Yeah. Uh, and that would be the leader of the party. Um, Roman said, you know, you haven't had these, these, these strong sort of leaders. I, I disagree. I mean, I, I, uh, uh, hold on. Before you spread fake news. Yes. I said the current leader is not strong. Previous okay. ones were strong. All right. So, so, <coughs> you know, we've had, so Tony Leon, I think can be credited with a lot of the growth of the party, certainly the growth and the growth trajectory. I think, um, Helen Ziller, uh, proved the governance, um, capabilities of the party. Both were very strong leaders. Both faced a lot of criticism during their time because they were those types of leaders um, who understood, in terms of my view of leadership, that democracy works up until a point and then somebody has to be in charge and somebody's got to bite a bullet. And that's the person who you've elected to be in charge. And and at that point, it becomes an autocratic decision. They they take counsel and then they decide. Um, and 
both of those people very strong leaders in that regard. Uh, Helen Zeller is still fighting it out that way on Twitter. Um, Not without a fight. Yes. And, and that's great and all. Um, Musi Maimani is a different character. Uh, no doubt about that before we get to what I think of his leadership, but he's just a different type of character. He seems to be, um, softer a, a little bit in that sense. Um, not as aggressive, certainly. Um, he's, he's, he, he takes a different approach to things. He, he wants to have sort of broad based discussions rather. Uh, I think, I think he's scared of offending people. Uh, frankly, except it would appear his his uh, original base uh, that he's not scared of 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 offending because one um, grumpy uh, sports presenter storms off a set. Um, but but he, he he so he's a very he's very different for the DA as far as I can tell as as a, as as a leader. Um, there's a lot of criticism about the DA and about his leadership uh, because the DA seems a bit rudderless or has seemed a bit rudderless certainly in the last two years. Uh, Musi, in my opinion, has made a number of missteps, although he does know how to deliver a good speech in Parliament. And now with the foe gone, you know, Jacob Zuma is not there anymore. Uh, Julius Malema is just a, basically a, a sink, cigarette smuggler's concubine. Uh, and so now I suppose the flaws are more exposed. So you know, you're a member of the party. He is your leader. Um, and I'm happy for you to defend him and I'm happy for you to agree with where it's, where you think it is. But, but what do you take of all the criticism? Yeah. Look, I mean, I, you know, I'm Musi's chief whip. I'm appointed by him and it's my primary job to defend him and defend the party. So, um, you know, you're asking a bird to fly here. Cool. Uh, but to say to you that, you know, I think each leader brings a different dynamic to a political party and each leader has strengths and each, each leader has weaknesses. And, and you, as you rightly say, uh, Helen and Tony, uh, before them and other leaders before them, Eglin and the others, you know, have all had, uh, really good points, but they've also had blind spots. They've also brought certain brands or a direction to the party, uh, and, and have been blind to other areas and they've neglected them, which have been done by other leaders. Look, I know Musi. Uh, Musi's not only my leader, he's also a personal friend of mine. Uh, we, you know, we're family friends. And I saw very early on something in Musi that I think represents the best of, of what the DA and the vision it has for South Africans, building a non-racial alternative. His story as well, I think, is a compelling story about how when opportunity are given to people, they can make the best of that opportunity and flourish in difficult environments. I think that his, uh, you know, his personal, uh, his, his family story is one, is, is a real South African story. And yes, I don't think he brings the, you know, the cut and thrust and the uh, sort of muscular liberalism that you would have experienced under Tony Leon or perhaps, you know, sort of the uh, Germanic uh, orderliness of, you know, of, of the Zilla, <laughs> of the Zilla leadership era. Um, but I think he has got other strengths that, that, uh, and that I think open up other markets for the DA, uh, who find, you know, the DA more palatable to vote for, uh, because they have a leader who they see as, you know, is a different leadership style. So Musi is a far more, uh, consensus based leader and the decisions he makes are, uh, you know, are his own at the end of the day. He seeks advice from the federal executive and from the federal council. Uh, but Musi's very much his own man. And I, you know, I really want to dispel this issue that, you know, Musi's my puppet or Natasha Mazzoni's puppet or James Self's puppet. 
I mean, Musi and I disagree vehemently on mm. a number of matters. Uh, we, you know, we have arguments on them as, as a chief whip and leader should do because I think it's in those tensions and in those discussions and debates that you actually come out with the right solution at the end of the day. So I think that, that Musi, Musi is going to be judged in this election and, and the people will, will pass judgment on Musi. He had a very good outing in the local government elections, his first election as leader. Uh, we grew, we took uh, over three uh, metros that we hadn't before. I think that's a very, very good uh, you know, uh, son, I think this election is going to be a little bit more difficult, and I think uh, you know the the electorate are going to pass judgment on both the DA and 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 Musi's leadership. But you know, I don't see a man who uh, is weak and vacillating. I see a, I see many strengths in Tony in in, in uh, Musi that I never saw in Tony and Helen. I saw I see blind spots in Musi that I don't see necessarily that sure. Helen and Tony had. So I think my problem is mm. I know things that I disagree with Tony on and things I agree with him on. I know the same things um, with Helen Ziller, having both, you know, followed those people for many years and spoken with them directly and personally. Um, now, I haven't spoken with Moosey personally, but the problem is, I I don't I don't know him enough. He doesn't stand out in any specific way. I can't go. You know, you know what he's really strong on is this. It's like I know he's probably quite strong on religion. Okay, which I actually think. I'm not a huge fan of, of, of certainly bringing religion into the state, but the point is a lot of people in this country are very religious. So if he would just stand up and go, you know, I'm a big, I'm religious and this is my belief and I believe that uh, we shouldn't bring religion into the state necessarily, but I believe that the lessons taught in the Bible, for example, are very relevant to how we live our lives and how we govern and how we treat each other, for example. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you stood by that strong, I'd be able to say, cool. That's something that Musi stands for, absolutely, because he stood up and said it strong and hard, not he went to a church one day or something like that, mm. because those are the rumors. You see, that's what happens is he, he, he does stuff or he says small things, and then there's like rumors and murmurings about what he believes or what he, uh, what he stands for, etc. And the thing about both Helen and Tony is they've both stood up very hard and you know the things that they, they, they are uncompromising on. I don't know what Moosey is uncompromising on. So perhaps that's a discussion at the federal executive that Moosey needs to be more sort of out there and more uh, voracious about, yeah. about his views. More yeah. Look, I think that, I, I think that you, you make some fair comments, but I would, I would simply say this as well is that unlike Helen and Tony, Moosey's relatively new to politics. This is a new environment for him as well. Uh, you know, he's very young. He's, uh, he's below 40. Mm. And, you know, his, politics has not been his life and existence as it was for Helen and Tony. <clears throat> so I also think there's a settling in period that, that leaders have and, you know, they find their mark and they, you know, they then, uh, they then, you know, uh, sort of, Use that as a platform ho- to. I would, have, I would have hoped you'd found his mark before he was leader of the party <laughs> in a country that dire, is in dire straits to have a, a new, a new leader, a new party. And so that's a, that's a worry. I mean, that truthfully, that's a worry as a, as a traditionally a, a DA voter. But I just want to make this point though, that you see, and this is, I think we obsess about personalities too much in politics without looking at, at parties. And that's where, you know, we end up with this cult worship of people like Zuma and they become you know, the reason for existence and it's very difficult to distinguish the party from them. That this party, 
that Musi leads is the same party that Helen was leading and Tony was leading, the same value set, the same principles, the same foundational core uh, you know, program and values. And you, know, you should be less worried about you know, what, what the leader says, but what the core values of the party are. Mm. And those hold consistently over through the leadership tenure of all the leaders that you've spoken to today. And Musi upholds and defends those core values as well. And I think that uh, you know, I think he's precisely the type of leader we need uh, to break the logjam in South African politics. I think he is a bridge builder, and I think that's his big strength. I think he is able to bring people together. Uh, he's going to be in Potchefstroom this evening to in the northwest to address this whole issue that occurred this week at Schweizerenica. I think, and, and he really is. You know, if he owns one thing, I believe it's reconciliation and something he lives and something he, uh, you know, has been his experience over the, the course of the last, uh, yeah. uh, last uh, decade of his life. You can't eat reconciliation, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, what, 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 what is that, 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 uh, that point where you, f- you figure out that his tenure, he hasn't, you know, he's a failure. What, what stage do you say to yourself? I mean, I assume it's based on the electoral results. So I assume if you lose, if you lose a few points, you know that, okay, uh, we need to, to, to change course. Uh, so, f- so for the party itself, what, uh, what is that, that failure point? Well, I think that, uh, you know, uh, we are, we, we, you know, like a company, we trade, but we trade in votes. And I think that, you know, you've got to consistently show results and show growth. The DA and the DP have grown in every single election since 94 from 1.7 percent, as I said, to uh, 22 percent now. And I think that, you know, your success as a leader and your success of, of leading the party is judged on how voters respond to, to that message. And so, you know, we had a situation in 94 where, you know, we had a disastrous outcome. It was then required of Zach de Beer and there were some uncomfortable discussions that took place at the time to say, look, mate, um, this is not a great result for us. You know, we've got to look at doing other things. But, you know, I, I you know, I, I think that this election, as I say, will, uh, the, People will pass uh, their view about the DA and and the future of the party on at the ballot box, and I think that you know every party then after an election has to take stock of where it's at and what needs to be done to grow the party further. Mm-hmm. Um, I said after the. Uh, local government elections where we, we, you know, Musi had an exceptional outing where we were able to, you know, rest three metros away from the ANC and to grow our uh, majority in Cape Town and to take over councils in far-found places and in weird provinces like uh, Limpopo where we, where we now run municipalities. Uh, it was an excellent outing and, you know, I think it consolidated Musi's leadership and gave him the confidence, uh, which he's, which he's building on. But, you know, I think that there's no party in, in the world that doesn't take stock of electoral outcomes. I think the ANC took stock of the electoral outcome in this election before the election, which is why I think they got rid of Zuma so quickly because they could see where things were heading. So you know, I think that leaders are judged uh, by and parties are judged and party leaders are judged by electoral electoral outcomes. And that's how they're held accountable ultimately uh, by the electorate. Do, do you think the DA is treated harsher, not just media, but by voters as well? Absolutely. Do you think there's a higher standard for you Absolutely. Than, than others? Absolutely, and I, I, I think we should welcome it. I really, I think it's right that we're held to a higher standard because we've got higher uh, ambitions for South Africa than what are currently there. And I just think that the, the prime example was 
the whole issue around around the Delil matter. So, you know, here's an electorate that screams for accountability and clean and accountable government. But, you know, when a party then takes action against a member of its party who had led to the city getting a, a, a less than satisfactory audit outcome, who an internal audit report and two independent investigations had found major leadership shortcomings from, and the party tries to take action against them, you know, we're vilified as sort of this terrible organization. Uh, but the point to make is simply this, is that, you know, it is hypocritical for us to hold the ANC accountable to a standard we are not prepared to hold our own people accountable. Yeah, I think we got given a, I think we got given unfair, uh, uh, ride there for what we were doing. Look, we made mistakes. We didn't handle the situation, uh, well. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons. And, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's been a, uh, you know, upsetting to some core DA voters about, about the situation. But at the end of the day, and we've got to apologize for that. But at the end of the day, we can't apologize. For holding our own accountable, because the problem is that when you turn a blind eye to the small and yana skeletons of your own people, uh, you end up like the ANC today, just so completely oh, yeah. moribund. Because at every single key point, they turned a blind eye. Whether it was Serafina, Varadine, Armsdale, and Kundla Gate, Travel Gate, uh, you know the Gupta landing, every single time it was a blind eye turned. And now that party is so compromised that Cyril actually, no matter if he wants to act, can't act because everybody knows each other's small and yana skeletons. He knows theirs, and they know him, yeah. and they can't move against each other. Which is why the anti-parliamentary list to Parliament looks exactly like it does. No change. The same people who created the problems going to be going back to Parliament where they're going to carry on because nobody can move against them in that organisation. Yeah, it's roughly a bit of that uh, the broken window theory in, in solving crime where you um, solve the small – you don't let the small issues go away. Mm. If the window's broken, you fix it because if mm. the window's broken, there's going to be graffiti the next week, then there's mm. going to be defacement the next week, then vagrants the next week. Uh, but if you if you discipline and you keep the small things and you solve them at that time, uh, it does work. But absolutely, and I think that history has shown us as well in, in South Africa is that you've got two options when you deal with these things. You've got the ANC option. You can turn it and sweep it under the carpet and hope it goes away. But experience shows us these things never go away, and it's often then the cover-up that's worse than the actual original act. So public exhibit A in Shlanshanene. You know, there's a guy who wasn't the fact that he met the Guptas, the fact that he lied about meeting the Guptas that, that got him where he was. So, or you act and you grasp the nettle and you deal with it. And, you know, I think people, you know, voters should take some solace in the fact that, you know, when people don't live up to the values and principles and the expectations of the party, we will take action no matter whether you're the leader, the mayor, a branch chair or a councillor, you will be held accountable. And I think we should welcome that. All right. So there was a lot of, trouble a while back well i mean media hop around who ended up in your fedex essentially um you had a conference and um it basically came down to an identity politic issue uh, uh, we very much in this country embrace uh, identity politics certainly around race uh, it's part of the historical thing obviously but also part of the way things are are, are sort of trending in the world at the moment and yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of criticism about the the fact that there's white people, um, you know, yourself, uh, uh, you know, you're a white male sitting in a position of, of, of relative power. Oh, sorry to spring it on you. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're all those sort of, I think they're quite pointless arguments, but I'm interested to hear um, your view on all of this because there's some people in your party who've 
echoed what the media has criticized you for um, and have basically tried to make as if there's there's value to this criticism that um, we should judge people essentially by the color of their skin and not by the content of their character. Yeah, well, I think it's an exact antithesis about uh, an open opportunity society that the DA is seeking to to create because what you do in an open opportunity society is that you look at individuals and you look at what they're able to offer. Now, you know, contrary to popular belief, I didn't have an option on the way out uh, which button to press what color I was going to come out. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> a, it wasn't an option I was given. So yes, I'm I was born white. Does it mean I, my contribution to South Africa must be devalued, that I must sit in some corner and uh, keep quiet and adopt a sort of sorry that I live approach and live on my knees? Absolutely not. I'm going to make a, a contribution. I've been unashamed about it. Yes, I'm a white South African. Uh, it, it's not something I can change. It's a, you know, it's a simple color, a simple matter of, of melanin. Uh, and I really think that we dumb down the debate in South Africa when we revert to this Racial characterization. I actually think that people like D.F. Milan and Hendrik Favut would be very proud about where we sit with race relations in South Africa at the moment because I think more and more you have politicians trying to get people to retreat into these racial lagers and cultural lagers and language lagers because it's a sense of comfort. These are cul-de-sacs that distract us from being on the road and getting to the destination we want to be, which is a truly democratic South Africa where individuals are guaranteed uh, their rights and guaranteed opportunities, not on the color of the skin, but by virtue of their citizenship. And that was, I thought there was a point of 94 was for us to leave this racial narrative in the past. Uh, our constitution says very clearly South Africa belongs to all who live in it, united in their diversity. And I think it's problematic when you've got political parties and political leaders who continuously seek to uh, delegitimize people or their arguments based purely on, on their race. Uh, and, you know, I think pretty much if we carry on down the road we're going, and we're going to be doing things like reintroducing the pencil test in South Africa uh, before you're allowed to have an opinion on anything. And I think that, that that is the exact antithesis of what an open society, what an open constitutional democracy uh, requires. What we should be doing is calling on the best efforts of every South African, no matter your skin color, no matter what God you worship, no matter what you know where you went to school, no matter the circumstances of your birth. If you've got a contribution to make, we want you to make it, and we want to build a South Africa that truly values the views and opinions and the contributions of all. This zero-sum game of of dividing and ruling is really going to lead South Africa into a deep, dark cul-de-sac from which it's going to be very, very difficult to emerge from. And we've seen the end game of these racial uh, you know, uh, policies. They end up in uh, despair, poverty, and uh, and failed states. Well, I agree broadly, except for communists. I don't think they should be allowed to hear their views. I'm happy to be less democratic. <laughs> but they all throw me in a gulag. I think Fire up the helicopters. We, we should just preempt. I mean, it's expensive. Yeah, we need uh, something. Hot about, air balloons. Hot air balloons. Yeah, we've got lots of air. Um, I actually forgot the point I was trying to make. You see, you try to be witty and then you, you lose, you lose <laughs> the points you're trying to make. Around, around, around all the race stuff. Yeah, I, I think. Look, oh, yes, sorry, I do remember my point. Okay, sorry, if I may, if I may. <laughs> I've, I've found out, um, well, I, I had this argument for a while now. A lot of people really like white supremacy in this country. Cause I speak to, I speak to a lot of, I see people on Twitter, I see politicians. 
the whites are this. They've been oppressive for 400 years. They own all the money. The very institutions of democracy are, are you know, whiteness. I'm like, if, if I have to agree with that, I'm a white supremacist. If, if someone of another color says that they're progressive and woke, don't you find that weird? That's true, yes, though. It's, it's a white supremacy. You're saying the, that the assumption is is that white people are somehow greater than everyone else, they, they just that they can do all this amazing right. stuff. And and people who listen, I know many white people. We are not that great. Do you have? Do you have? Are you friends with white people? I am friends with a few. Okay, all some right. of your best friends are. White. Some of my best friends are, are. Are they white though? I mean, they're mostly Jewish and European, so I don't know if they count as white. But, <laughs> but yeah, but, but but you see, I think that what's what has happened in South Africa. There's a number of conferences. I think we've got a really strong influence, particularly at university level, of this sort of critical race theory. And I think it's absolutely it's gathered uh, a great deal of momentum on our university campuses. And it's we're about to give a doctorate to uh, Julius Malema in, uh, in critical race well, theory, which is producing uh, you know these these distractions from the real problems in South Africa. And I then also think race is a convenient scapegoat to to failure. So when something doesn't work or, you know, you've pilfered money from your department and you're exposed, of course, the first go-to is, as you saw Batabila Dlamini in the last uh, Sunday Times where she said Musi Maimani was a, a racist for exposing uh, the fact that she had uh, mismanaged her department and been found uh, as a delinquent by the Constitutional Court. I mean, it's ironic, a, a black female saying a black male is racist, but nonetheless, there it is. But it gets pulled out as this handy card because it is then seen as the trump card. So I used to play a game when I was uh, I was young, probably a bit before your time. We used to have these things called trump cards. You used mm-hmm. to have airplanes and cars, yes. and there was always a trump card in the pack. So with the airplanes, it was always the Lockheed Blackbird. I remember that. Yeah. And you yeah, know, once, you, once you pulled that Lockheed Blackbird, but out, boy, you had won the you'd won the argument, and, and the cards were yours. And I think race is becoming the Lockheed Blackbird card in South Africa, where you know when you can't argue with somebody, and you see it so often on Twitter. As soon as you start to you know poke the argument or you know and deconstruct the argument, it's not a witty comeback or a um, you know or a, you know. A, Counter argument. It's, oh, you're, you're this color. So, you know, there it is. That's why you think this way. And as I said to you, I think that the race architects, uh, of the apartheid era would be very proud of where, uh, this country is at the moment with race relations. And the truth of the matter is we really have been through tough times as a country. And I think we've got some really tough times ahead of us. But the times we've been able to overcome those adversities and those difficult times is really when we've stood together across the racial spectrum, across the uh, the, the language divide, uh, across the cultural divide, and actually stood shoulder to shoulder to to get us out of the situation that we've been in. And you know, if we continue down this path of dividing people on something as silly as race and the color of their skin, uh, I think we're on a slippery slope to to a failed state. Uh, I must admit, John, like I, I cringe a bit when. When politicians say we should stand, you know, side to side and come together and kumbaya and all the rest of it, you need to win. And then when you win, your ideas are are the ideas of that society in the amount of time that you win. If if if, if I mean. The DA shoots off in the foot all the time now. Whether the Schweizerainica stuff, right? That was started by a youth leader within the DA. Who said, oh, this is terrible. One is Africa for all races and must fall, et cetera. And then 24 hours later, he goes there and he says, oh, now I'm actually finding out what the facts are. That mm-hmm. sort of shit, like, just destroys 
the accountability of the DA itself, and it plays right into the hands of your of your opponents, of, the, of your critical race theorists, the opponents. Why? I mean, if you just say straight from the beginning, you know, race doesn't matter. It actually doesn't exist in a fundamental sense at any scientific or biological level. We're not talking about race at all. We're only talking about solutions. We're only talking about economic growth. We're only talking about freedom. Am I wrong? Or is it, well, or, I think, or it, you I think it, in, in an ideal world, that, that would you know would probably be the ideal way to deal with it. But the truth of the matter is that the race dynamic and the polarization is a real uh, you know, uh, environmental uh, effect at the moment in South Africa. And I think that you ignore it at your own peril. Just about uh, Loyola, I think there's been a great deal of disinformation about what was actually said and 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 what the timeline was. Uh, you know, he he did uh, tweet a. A picture four hours after it had already gone viral on the uh, on the internet, and they went out there the next day. But there's this disinformation during the rounds that he revealed the teacher's name, that he said a whole lot of things that he never said. It's completely untrue, and uh, no doubt the truth is going to come out in the in the weeks ahead. Yeah. But that being said, I do think that it is important, particularly in a fast moving environment, particularly in a social media environment, particularly in the post truth. Environment that we find ourselves, that it is always important to make sure you've got all the facts at your disposal uh, before making pronouncements on, on things. And I think that uh, it's very easy, uh, you know, for for people to you know misinterpret situations. And that's why I think he did the right thing by going there the next day and having a look at the situation, assessing the situation. Uh, you know, he certainly didn't get suspend the teacher. He didn't climb over the wall and harass and terrify oh, no, children. No, not at all. He didn't break the. You he, know, just, he didn't break the issue. Um, but he but, just exacerbated it without 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 due process, and that and that's the issue because he's young. Okay, I get it, right? I mean, I'm not saying he's he's evil incarnate, but it's, it's shit like that that dilutes the message overall of the DA, and it plays right into the hands of the EFF and the ANC like all the time. Uh, I'm not in favor of social media policies, but <laughs> something like that. Can it really? I think that really irritates your base. Yes, it does irritate our base sometimes, but I also think it, you know, it lets other people know that their views and 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 their opinions are also shared and their concerns are shared by us. I think that anyone looking at that picture would have been curious about what is going on there. I mean, it 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 does look odd. If you when I looked at it, I must admit it jarred. Sure. It, it did jar, and I think that. You know, it, I think it was natural for one to want to inquire, you know, what was going on here. But that's why I say it's always important to make sure you've got the full set of facts at your disposal uh, when you're when you're making uh, an answer. That's why I think that the MEC's rush to suspend the teacher looks now like he suspended mm. the wrong teacher. Uh, you know, the EFF you know, wanting to jump over the school and destroy the school and burn it down and uh, you know cause harm to parents just because they happen to be a certain color. You know, is is the the exact antithesis of what building one South Africa for all means. Okay, but and clearly there's a social media problem in the DA. I, I mean, I think it needs to be said. No, I, you've got Helen Zeller tweets about Singapore. I agree with everything she said. Okay, and I still don't think she should ever apologize for anything as it happens. But the problem is the DA runs an internal poll, which we never see the results of and no one will show anyone. And then they chuck Helen Zilla. So you've now lost one of your strongest people in the party. And frankly, if she opened up in competition to you, you lose about 8%. Right. Then you've got um, Pumzele Fandam 
who regularly goes on Twitter left, right and center and says whatever she likes about anyone, including the two hosts of the show, calling us both racist, far right, ultra right, etc., etc. Right. Um, like I, I don't have a giant base, but I'll get you a seat in parliament on the show that we're worth at least a seat. Um, so, you know, come elections and I turn around and go, don't vote DA because Pumzile is an idiot. Um, and you don't want someone like that to have a seat in parliament. Frankly, if you lose a seat, she should be the one losing it. Now, then you, then on top of it, you have Musi Maimani straight off the Ashram Vilimsa. He could have waited for the facts, but he doesn't wait for the facts. He doesn't wait for the facts. He tweets out a stupid tweet. And then it comes out two black CEOs sit down next to each other three days later and go, this is bullshit. There's nothing going on here. And it turns out there's nothing going on here. And now Ashwin Williamson wants to be a politician, right? And then you've got a youth leader who obviously, I agree with you, the picture jars. I, I'm, I'm using the, the most known examples, but the picture, the picture jars and he, he tweets it out. I, I get that he was, he thought something was odd or whatever, but maybe he could have just waited like a little bit, like, or, uh, you know, cause I saw the picture and ask, I waited. I didn't say anything. Or ask the question in the tweet. Um, it, I waited and within two hours, someone had seen the metadata of the second picture. So the the thing is 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 I, I don't necessarily need your comment here, but I know that um, people in the party are going to be listening to this. Um, I certainly know that you're a thoughtful guy, and you'll 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 keep it in mind. You guys are, are shooting yourselves in the foot repeatedly with either your base or you're doing what Ramon says and empowering your direct opposition. When you engage in critical race theory, you are being EFF soldiers. That is exactly what you're doing. Anyone in your party who engages in this nonsense or who tries to amplify either a race or a gender or any of these identity narratives, you are playing directly into the EFF's hands. And they're better at you than it. They're better at it than you are. So what will happen is you will amplify it and then they will run with it and they will run you over. Um, and, and so I just think that there needs to be a lot of thought about um, what's happening in that kind of space? Because, as far as I can tell, there's a lot of uh, the DA does do good stuff, and they do say good stuff, and they they, they where they govern, they there's there's some good things that happen, there's some shitty things that happen as well. The point is, is that you keep railroading yourselves on social media unnecessarily. This latest example is could have been completely avoided by perhaps I don't know social media training. Maybe all your, especially the youngsters in the party need to go on social media training where people say to them, look, you, I, I can tweet something out and it damages me. It doesn't damage an entire brand. Uh, um, this is a, an entire brand, actually. <laughs> yes, which I'm co-owner. <laughs> um, but the point is, is, is when they do that as a counselor or a leader within your party and it, it, and people then identify the brand as having done something wrong rather than them. Um, because I know what you're going to say. Individuals in the party will do individual things. So, yeah. No, no I, I look, I mean, I, I also, I think that you've got to look at the lens through which someone like Loyola saw that picture. And, you know, we've got to take into account the lived experience of, of, you know, his background and where he's come from, where, you know, he's also experienced, uh, you know, being uh, division and, and racial segregation and the like. So he saw that, that, that tweet and uh, that picture and, you know, he saw it through his particular lens. Now, I'm not saying to you that, you know, politicians should rush to condemn and judge. I'm not saying that at all. And I think, unfortunately, social media creates a perfect platform for these perfect storms of outrage, 
to take place. And, you know, they very quickly on both sides of the spectrum, I might add, you're able to whip up racial emotion. So, you know, if I look at some of the stuff that's come out of the Front National and that I find it equally repugnant. You know, Absolutely. The, the death threats against Loyola and oh, there's a, and there's a YouTuber that's yeah. a far right YouTuber. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, it brings the out the worst on both sides of the spectrum. But, you know, the, I, I, I think that uh, social media is a dangerous environment because a things move very quickly. Uh, you know, there's a post-truth world that we're living in, and I think the exposure of this the advocate Barry Rue, and you know, we find that this guy's been causing trouble for South Africans. Actually, isn't even a South African uh, using Twitter as a platform to stir up this racial hatred. It is, it's ripe for it. So, in the war, they used to have this uh, this post on the wall. It says, "Loose lips sink ships." So uh, what we've had put up in, in many of our offices around the country is one that says loose tweets sink fleets. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it is it's something that particularly politicians need mm. to be very, very aware of. I know I'm very careful. Um, I don't tell people to uh, air forth anymore on Twitter. Apparently it doesn't <laughs> go down very well. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you really have to restrain yourself. Uh, you know, sometimes you almost want to open a second account so that you can have, have a real go at some of the people. But, you know, I've just found the best way to handle social media is I put out, you know, what are my viewers and, you know, I'll engage with people who are willing to have a, a proper engagement. I just ignore the trolls and the, and the, you know, the race baiters because you're never going to win with them. They're not going to ever vote for the DA. They're never going to support me. You know, they've got a, their, their own perspective and they must get on with it. But, you know, I, I, I think that, that we all need to be very careful about how, about how we manage social media because it's very easy for it to be manipulated by. Both sides of the political yeah. spectrum, the far right and the, the far radical left. Let's talk. We've got to wrap up soon. Uh, we've spoken a lot about the ANC. We've given you, we've, you've spoken a lot about the DA. We've given you some stick as well. I hope mm. we won't get, uh, the feedback that we, we didn't, uh, we, we don't. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's fair stick. Yeah. Mm. We don't, we don't, we don't push politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, although I must give you a compliment. You are one of the uh, politicians who comes on the shows, comes on the show and talks freely rather than we feel like we're having this stunted conversation. Um, but let's talk EFF quickly. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't re- want to dedicate too much time to them because I, I think that they're a relative open book. It's very clear what they are. Um, but they have shaken up South African politics uh, in the sense that, in, in our opinion, they've pulled the ANC far left. Um, so they've gone with a very far left politic and they've pulled the ANC with them, and the ANC, in an attempt to gain some of that support back, has has kind of followed some of their policies. I mean, EWC certainly was pushed at least. It was on the ANC platter always, but it was definitely pushed to the front uh, by the EFF. Uh, Julius has been a quite a well. He's been a character. Um, he's been quite a hateful little man, but 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 you know he's caused problems um, for all parties. I think. Where do you guys stand on 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 the EFF and and what their value is in in the political landscape? Well, I mean, I've got a you know perhaps got a completely different view. Uh, I think undoubtedly they um, shook up the parliamentary environment, but I think that the EFF and their policies and their approach to politics is terrifying, and I think is one of the biggest threats to our. A future viability as a democracy if they are to grow. I don't think they're going to grow in this next election, but nonetheless, mm. I think that the uh, policies they espouse are, are completely dangerous. Uh, they, they lead to the failed state. And, you know, if you want to see the outcome of EFF policy suite, go and look what's happening in Venezuela, look what's happening in Zimbabwe and other failed uh, Marxist, Leninist social experiments. 
uh, it's it's a complete failure. But I also think that yes, whilst they may have, have uh, you know shaken things up, I think they've been given far too free ride in the political spectrum. So I can tell you if the DA disrupted Parliament the way, it would have been an outcry. But also the media have been so soft on them that they've allowed them to get away with the hypocrisy. It's not even soft. It's their own yeah. advertising yeah. agencies. Yeah, so they've been so sweetheart and, and and they've allowed them to get away with hypocrisy. So if Musi Maimani or I stood up in Parliament and said pay back the money when you know I had a huge unsettled bill and owed the government money, uh, if I stood up in Parliament and said the public protector's reports are binding and must be carried out, the only way you can overturn them is in a court of law, and yet I was the subject of a, parliament, uh, of a public protector's finding and the on-point uh, debacle, uh, I think that the newspaper headlines are screwed hypocrites. But these guys have been treated like gods, like political gods. And frankly, uh, way, uh, way beyond what their, what their values. And I think a lot of the people in the media are starting to now find out that when, yeah. you know, the old saying, when you feed, you know, feed a crocodile, um, hoping it'll eat you last, you know, you, you generally end up being, being eaten by it. But it's, uh, it's just amazing to see the hypocrisy that they get away with. So I do a parliamentary tour, uh, for people who come around to parliament. Hopefully the renegade report can, uh, can come down and, uh, and, and come and visit. And it always ends in the parliamentary parking I'd garage. Search the anarchist, definitely. <laughs> uh, so, so it always ends in the, in the parliamentary parking garage. And I always say, well, like, who's, who's, who parks here? Anyone looks for well, Jaguars and seven series ML. It must be the DA car park. I said, no, no, this is the EFF car park. And the hypocrisy that is the EFF, that they come to work in, you know, Louis Vuitton and Gucci and the like. And just before they go in the house, they flip on their red overalls and then pretend to be the champions of the working class. That is hypocritical. For them to come to parliament and argue that you have to have a degree, uh, you know, to represent people in parliament when they're supposed to be the vanguard of the working class, miners and, you know, no, that like, was a real you know, misstep. I mean, complete. I mean, com- <laughs> and, and when, when four of their own members don't even have matric and the majority of their members on their benches don't have any post-school qualification. That is the hypocrisy that is the EFF. But I think the biggest danger for me that the EFF represents is essentially the future for what's going to happen in South Africa. And I do really think there's a tunardering that's starting to happen with the EFF and a faction of the ANC. And it's probably best borne out by the most bizarre thing that happened in Parliament, certainly in the last year for me, was this out-of-the-blue suggestion from the EFF that instead of coming once per month to answer parliamentary oral questions, that the Deputy President Didi Mabuza should only come four times a year. And you've got to really ask yourself a question. Why would an opposition party want to uh, lose the opportunity to expose arguably the weakest and most compromised member on the government decrease front. Decrease his exposure. Decrease exposure. That's because there is a deal being done and you know Cyril thinks he's been clever by putting this red snake in his pocket and you know thinking he's he's jollying them along. There is a real present danger to his future leadership because a two-nodding with Mabuza and Malema, who are essentially the same, uh, different sides of the same coin. They are rent seekers, they are power hungry and their ultimate goal is to have uh, their hands on all the levers of power so they can dispense And they've both shown that they'll do almost yeah, anything. anything to get elected. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you... Sorry, sorry. Uh, including murder. Yeah. Yes, including that. Uh, you know, to, um, to then 
you know, have some sort of tune-out ring, I think is a real threat to our future viability as a democratic country. And this is a salutary warning to all of those people who are buying into the Max Dupree, Peter Bruce line that we've got to strengthen Cyril's hand and give them, uh, uh, give the ANC a strong mandate. When you go and vote and you fall into that folly and you play with that fire and you put your cross next to the ANC, not only are you voting, not voting for Cyril, you're voting for Batsabili Dlamini, Nomvula um, Mokanyana, you're voting for Malusi Gagabin, you're voting for 10 years of looting. Not only are you doing that, you're giving them a majority. And I think you've got to look at trends in politics. The last three ANC presidents have all been pushed out before the end of their term and replaced by their deputies. Do you really want to give David Mabuza, A, the power to expropriate without compensation, and B, give him the power to uh, a, a huge parliamentary majority, where essentially then every aspect of the Constitution is up for discussion or uh, debate? And that is the big lesson that people need to be very, very careful of uh, when they think they've been clever by falling into this, you know, give Cyril a stronger mandate. You could end up giving a stronger mandate to David Mabuza. And this isn't Morkels where you get a two-year guarantee. You're going to have to wait five years before you get an opportunity to uh, to take back uh, or, you know, what, uh, what you've given out. Yeah, I mean, the ANC is everything but impatient. They can play the long game like no one else. I think the one thing... It's just a comment, not a question. But the one thing that the EFF understands, even if they don't understand this exact point, but they certainly demonstrate it, is that um, politics is downstream from culture. And the EFF has picked up on a lot of zeitgeist in the country um, in terms of culture, in terms of people's lives and the way people view things. Um, and they're playing that game. And I think the DA would be wise um, to play that game on the opposite end. You don't have to play the same game. It's the same game, but it's obviously not with the same um, pieces. Uh, but but I, I think it would be wise to to, to follow the same tactic. Um, it, it, it harks back to what I was talking earlier about consensus politics not necessarily being the, the way of the future. Ramon, final thoughts? Uh, no, none at all. I think I think the, the coalitions in Houten should should have collapsed a long time ago, if I'm honest with you. EFF and DA together, it's just not working out. We <laughs> we were relatively supporters of Herman Mashaba when he was appointed. I don't see anything in the yeah, past. I see three. some worrying things. I see some worrying things, actually. And I think um, I don't think the EFF is, is worth your time at all. I think it's best for the ANC and the EFF to completely fuck everything up, and then you can come save us in five years' time. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And, uh, so, I mean, that's the only point I want to make. But another point, John, um, I really appreciate you coming in here and being as honest as you were. It's, it's very refreshing to, we have a lot of politicians in here and it's, and it's difficult. It's getting blood from a stone to find out what they actually believe. And, and kudos to the DA. You're the only party that actually comes on here other than Cope. Cope came on here, but ANC EFF absolutely refused to come on here. And kudos to the DA. You do come on here and you, you do go toe to toe with us, which is which is appreciative, appreciated rather. Let me just make a point about the coalitions, if I if I may, go for just it. in response to that. Look, I mean, you know, coalitions aren't perfect science, and they're like a marriage. You know, you sort of don't always get it right, and there's periods of conflict. But I think it was essential for us to break the hegemony of the ANC and to show voters that there is a link between how you vote and how you're governed, and that. It is possible to vote the ANC out of power. So I would admit to you that you know, being in coalition with the EFF, 
uh, has been very challenging and they're a very unreliable partner. Uh, I think that uh, they uh, involve themselves in all sorts of things that they shouldn't be involved in. And I think they have made life very, very difficult for the DA. Uh, you know, they, they, they're not reliable. And we've learned some strong lessons about coalition management over the course of the last few years. Mm, but to point. say this, I think that, you know, you, the, it's a quintessential question in politics compared to what? So yes, Joburg, you know, perhaps has not been able to deliver the massive, you know, change that we would have liked to have seen to now. But I certainly think the green shoots are there. I think things are changing. And compared to what? Well, the trajectory of both Chwane and Joburg, under the ANC's burgeoning corruption and maladministration, was leading to direct failure and direct collapse. Now, it's very difficult in three short years to turn around 20 years of of uh, mismanagement and corruption. But I think that Herman and Solly have made some great steps in you know, trying to uh, regain confidence, investor confidence in the cities. Uh, both the, the investment grades and both Joburg and Chwane have improved. Uh, of course, it's difficult to uh, improve service delivery. And it's the way the city was designed, particularly Joburg. It was deliberately broken up into all these entities because it, it, it then massively expanded the opportunity for rent-seeking. I think what Herman have got to do is put the city back together so that you have a consolidated uh, service delivery focus and you're able to turn things around a lot quicker. But of course, I mean, it's a lot easier when you've got your own majority because then you've got your hand on the throttle. You can push full steam ahead and implement your policies and, and bring the changes. And I think that if you look at what the DA was able to do in Cape Town uh, after, you know, particularly after we got a, a solid majority, was we were able to move things on a lot quicker than when we were in that messy eight-party coalition uh, before and I think that there's a lesson there, you know, sort of to, about strengthening the, the DA's hand, so that we, you know, we've got a bigger uh, a hold on the throttle, and we're not being beholden to the whims and fancies of of smaller parties. But I think it showed people that, that for me, the most important things were two: one, that you showed people that the ANC could be out of government, and that you can imagine a post ANC world where, you know, the, where they're not in government, and B, we're able to stop the ATMs uh, that, that essentially Joburg and Chwane were being used as. And I think that's going to be massively useful to the DA in the Gauteng election particularly because you've cut off two big centers of patronage and uh, and uh, thievery for the ANC. And I think that's why Gauteng is so competitive now. It's precisely because they've lost those two uh, key centers of power here in Gauteng, and they could well be the key for us uh, hurting them very badly in this next Yeah, so just quickly, what do you think Solly's chances? Because Solly resigned today as the mayor of the executive mayor of, of Pretoria, uh, or Chwani, sorry, uh, whoever mm-hmm. I offended with either of those. Uh, and I mean, I'm not sure why he resigned. I don't really understand that fully. But, but the point is, he's resigned. Someone I assume will take his place. He seems, I, would guess he's quite confident of a victory if he's resigning from his position. Um, what's the what, what's the forecast there? Because well, do look, you know something we don't? Well, look, Gauteng is looking very. There's two provinces that are looking very, very good for the DA at the moment outside of the Western Cape, and Gauteng is obviously the prize, and and the Northern Cape. Um, Gauteng has been in play. Um, for a while, which is why we made the decision to relocate our head office up to Gauteng. So we've got a footprint here to use the two metros as a springboard, like we used the city of Cape Town to go in and win the province uh, away, or, you know, using that delivery model. So, 
you know, our numbers are telling us that, that the ANC on serious trouble here in Gauteng, uh, that there's a very real prospect we could bring them below that 50% mark. And so Solly's made the decision now that it's impossible for him to campaign full out, uh, for the premiership and do, do good by the city in, in Chwane. So he stepped down, uh, the DA will uh, elect a new mayor, uh, in, well, the council elect a new mayor. Um, Khaleb Kachalia. <laughs> are you not to bring, taking Khaleb away from me in parliament? Khaleb's a very good member of my, <laughs> of my national assembly team and I'm not going to lose him. Uh, so, you know, they, they'll elect a new mayor, but it gives Solly the opportunity to really go out now and engage with the communities. And Solly is very good at that. I mean, I worked with him on the ground in the, in the Chwane election. He's got a, a really good charisma. He's got a good connection with people on the ground. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the more people we can get him in front of without the strains of having to manage a city, a very difficult city manager and a very difficult political environment, I think the better foot forward we're going to be able to put to make the case for why we need to have a strong showing here in Gauteng. Only problem is that if he wins the premiership and the DA, though, still drops in the national vote, uh, what happens when he resigns to become the leader? Well, of course, I mean, these are, you know, that, that's a great yeah. thing about the DA. And, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, we need to be commended for that. We have open contestation. Uh, we have congresses uh, every three years. And anybody can put their name forward uh, to be the leader of the party. Uh, you know, uh, we, we open that opportunity up for everybody. And, you know, we've had challenges, uh, leadership races in the past. And I think that, you know, we've done them in a dignified way, in a democratic way. No one's thrown chairs. No one's been shot. No <laughs> one's had a brick thrown through the back of the head. You know, no one's been stabbed. And I think that speaks well to the internal, uh, you know, political democracy that is the DA and is, you know, is exemplified by our uh, election process and our list processes. Right. John. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. Almost two hours of conversation. Any last words from you? Well, I just want to say thank you uh, for the opportunity to be with you guys. Uh, I think that the democratic space, you know, needs to be expanded far more in South Africa and we need to find innovative ways to, to be able to have these conversations. I think the more South Africans talk and the more we engage, I think the stronger we are, uh, you know, as a democracy. And so, mm. you know, I, you know, I hope that, uh, that the show goes from strength to strength. And thank you. Uh, you know, the platform expands so that we can keep these conversations going. People must talk. We must keep the space open. John Steenhazen promotes alt-right podcast. That's the headline on Monday. <laughs> That's probably the headline. Uh, more like we'd love to have more parliamentarians on all sides of the aisle on the show because I think uh, nobody benefits from those uh, five-minute uh, segments on ENCA or whatever or it is. Or on UCB's show. Um, or on UCB. Well, no one benefits with UCB's. But that's a <laughs> separate discussion. Um, and, and, yeah, as you say, good good long conversation, and that's really important. As always, you can support the show if you'd like. Uh, we've moved away from Patreon. We're still there, but not really promoting that. Um, PayPal, if you're interested. Our website's launching soon. Uh, we'll also be launching with a donate link. And subscribe, subscribe to our YouTube page. Yes, YouTube channel. The moment Ramon's been doing most of the content. Um, click the bell so that you get notified. Excellent and all content, the rest I might of that add. Stuff. Very yeah, excellent. A lot of preparation, uh, <laughs> hours and days and weeks. Uh, and as always, we appreciate you listening. You can find us on Facebook uh, and on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Bye.
This is CliffCentral.com.